ladies and gentlemen, hello again. Welcome back to Don't Worry About the Government. My name is Chris Novembrino. What are we going to talk about on this episode? What are we going to talk about? Hmm. Hmm. Well, we'll figure out something somewhere along the way here on this episode. I think you guys know where we're going on this one. Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago was raided by the FBI in an unannounced raid. We will be talking about that in the second segment. Prior to that, I'll be talking about the results from the Kansas election and how that cross-references against the last episode that we did. Uh, What does it tell us about upcoming elections? I think it's actually pretty interesting. Chesterfield Cat is, of course, excited about it. And, yeah, I know, I know, hold your horses. And then later on in the episode... We will be talking about something a little bit more grim, which is the Russians threatening to escalate in a nuclear fashion and increased recklessness in the Russian-Ukrainian war. But first, let us begin with Kansas. So, uh, let me put this up on the screen here, people. Uh, There were some real interesting results out of the Kansas election here. Kansas had a referendum on the ballot that said, should Kansas and their constitution be amended to remove the protections of abortion rights? As of August 5th, 2022, with the final results tallied, we had 922,000 people voting. 543,000 voted against the referendum. That's 59% to 378,000, 41%. These numbers are stunning um these are really staggering numbers especially as you start to dig into them um i mean you hear kansas vote 60 40 to keep abortion protections in the law and that's a big deal uh and a real blow against the state legislatures and like a real confirmation of what a lot of us knew which is that the republicans really only have support for this in the shadows yeah they've got like a base constituency that's a money-based constituency that absolutely sees utility in outlawing abortion. It's a goal. It's the whole reason they vote Republican. But largely speaking, this is not enough to keep together an electorate. And when you start breaking down the election results last time and you cross-reference this outcome to the election results, it's real interesting. I know there is some cynicism towards the Novian theory that Republican votes can be suppressed or that they can be flipped even. And I, of course, expressed skepticism towards the flipping idea, but basically said that voter suppression is entirely possible among the Republican base. And let's cross-reference this. The Democratic turnout last time for the uh, election was 570,000 votes for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And that, that was a hot year for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. A lot of anti-Trump sentiment. I mean, look at the national popular vote. That's sort of an all-hands-on-deck vote. 41% of uh, the total electorate there, 570,000 votes. To the Republicans bringing in 771,000 votes. That was 56%. They lost 200,000 votes. Or No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Whoa, whoa, whoa. wrong. They lost 350,000 votes between the presidential election and this referendum on abortion. And you could say it's flipping, but then you might expect to see the Democratic number higher. 543,000 is, you know, like around where you might expect it. You know, like like that's a little all hands on decky, but like that's also like in line with an election. And Democratic voting turnout right now is really energized, uh, perhaps up to presidential levels. Like, that seems plausible, right? So then the real issue here is hundreds of thousands of Republicans staying at home. Uh, It doesn't even look like flipping. It looks like they just stayed at home. Um, Registered Republicans in the state. I mean, this is the other thing. You can kind of cross-reference this again. Uh, If if you are a supporter on Patreon, going to be plugging it because I lost my job here uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, Last day is on Friday of this week here, the 12th. 
Um, so, yeah, if you're watching on Patreon here, thank you for supporting the show. And also, you can take a look at these charts and see the PDFs and everything as well. If you look at the affiliated voters by party, Republicans make up 50% of the registered voters in the state with Democratic and unaffiliated kind of federating together to make up the other half. Uh, Republicans just under half. Um, if you got all of the unaffiliated and all of the Democratic voters together, all of them, they're just about even with uh with the republicans and if you look at the presidential election turnout a lot of these unaffiliates have to be right-leaning voters who just don't like saying they're republicans that being said boy um this is a real electoral issue for uh for the republicans um let's take a look at the last let's show the uh slate last time here um if we look at pro-choice or pro-life in Kansas, they are were only plus four pro uh, pro life, um, and a comparison between presidential performance and abortion views does show plus eleven here. This was predictable. Uh, I'm not saying I saw this coming. No, I am saying though that if you look at the show slate and this chart here that I, I included on the last show slate. I think there's something to this. I think this really is an electoral problem for the Republicans. I don't think they have a good answer for this. I, I think that if we are talking about a guy like Ron DeSantis, one of his many challenges when running for president is going to be what is the new Republican position on abortion slash medical liberty? Because this, I support a life begins a conception abortion ban is a political loser it's the sort of loser that could flip texas uh I, as i said last time i maybe not fully appreciated in the moment especially because of how dark it is but this does have a little bit of this we just lost the south for a generation after the civil rights act was passed sort of political shift in the landscape if Kansas can go 60-40 towards the essentially Democratic position here, that suggests that this abortion issue, you know, long framed as the third rail of American politics or one of the third rails of American politics, truly is. Uh, and, and that the Republicans are the dog that has caught the parked car. Okay, enough strained analogies here. I think you get the point. Th this is a problem for them. It really is. Oh, look at little Yuffie drinking from the water jug behind me. All right. Little Yuffie is so cute. Uh, you know who is also really cute? Or you know what else is cute? Trump is not cute. But you know what is cute? The FBI raiding Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago. Let us just bask in the history of this for a moment. This is a former president getting raided by the top law enforcement agency in the land in an unannounced fashion because the agency is so cynical about the individual they are investigating the former president that they needed to have the advantage of an unannounced raid and now let's break down why the FBI needed to do an unannounced raid. Because I think, honestly, that's the most interesting part of this. I We can get into what we think that this is about and all of that here in a moment, too. But, like, the unannounced raid part, right? Okay. For those of you who have been following the show for a long time, Donald Trump is someone who uh, does not keep records in a, uh, a tidy fashion. Um, Donald Trump was known to rip up pieces of official paper that he was handed, forcing officials to tape them back together. An upcoming book by a New York Times reporter reveals that staff members would find clumps of torn up paper clogging a toilet and believe that he had thrown them in. He ate pieces of paper. He, he would just eat documents. Um, once he started seeing that people were putting back together the ones that he was ripping up. Um, he, the, the destruction of federal documents while he was president was well documented. 
for lack of a better term here. However, part of the problem while he was president is that essentially everything can be declassified by the president as Trump was wont to do on a regular basis. He would sort of uh, informally declassify things all the time. And so you know, a lot of times it would fall into this weird gray area. But he's no longer president. He's no longer president. Since being president, uh, or since, now that he is the former president, earlier this year, he delayed returning 15 boxes of material requested by officials with the National Archives for many months, only doing so when there became a threat of action to retrieve them. That case was referred to the Justice Department by the archives earlier in the year. I think this is the important inflection point. Um, and here is why I think it's important. Donald Trump, very, very likely, I think the story is going to develop in this fashion, was told to turn over a bunch of documents that he kept surrounding January 6th. And that that's a, appears to be the focus of this. Uh, Mr. Trump has been the focus of questions asked by federal prosecutors in connection with a scheme to send fake electors to Congress and for the certification of the Electoral College. The House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol also continues its work and is interviewing witnesses this week. So it looks like this surrounds January 6th. Not surprising there. It looks like Trump had documents and only turned them over earlier this year when there was a threat of legal action against him. Do we really believe that Donald Trump turned over all of the documents? 100% of them. All of them. Or do we think that it is far more likely that they turned over many of the documents, but not all of them? If we think it is that second case, I do, I do, then we are in an interesting situation where Donald Trump had malice of forethought here in withholding these documents. This brings us into the Hillary Clinton zone. Yes, in a bit of narrative irony that's like too juicy for any English major to ignore, it appears the thing that brought Trump to the office might be the thing that disqualifies him from the office. Section 2071 of Title 18 of the United States Code makes it a crime if someone who has custody of a government document or records willfully and unlawfully conceals, removes, mutilates, obliterates, falsifies, or destroys them. If convicted, defendants shall be fined or can be fined or sentenced to prison up to three years. He's not going to prison, people. In addition, the statute says that they, if they are currently in a federal office, that they shall forfeit that office and that they shall be disqualified from holding any office under the United States. The shall part is very, very strong language. The one thing that keeps Donald Trump's fingernails hanging on here, or I guess the two things, so is first he has to get convicted, um, might be tough with the Republican Supreme Court, but then once convicted, um, you have to make sure that he's not sort of protected by the same sort of language that Hillary Clinton and her team were going to try to use if she had gotten convicted. Uh, and I would suspect that the disingenuous Republican Supreme Court would essentially cite the Hillary Clinton cases in precedence a number of different times when explaining why Donald Trump should still have the ability to face the public. Uh, it, that would be the argument, right? Like, we should let the public decide on this matter. That, that oh, yes, it does say that in the statute, but, like, ultimately, this should go to the people. Uh, funny how the court likes to throw some things to the people and then leave other things for themselves to decide. But, but guarantee you that they would use that sort of language. They'd use Hillary Clinton to confuse a lot of the editorial libs at the New York Times and the Washington Post and on CNN, that sort of thing. Chris Elizabeth would be like, well, you know, there's something to this argument. This is a very thoughtful sort of bipartisan argument, that sort of thing. Um, that's how they would weasel around this. But it looks like this investigation centers in to Donald Trump's coordination on the domestic terror attack that was January 6th, the false electors plan to overturn the election and 
you know, I think maybe a question of how much did he know about the violent actions and how actively was he trying to stir up violent actions? If you can show that Donald Trump was trying to stir up violent actions, or let's say that there was, this is a weird one, coordination between Alex Jones and Donald Trump on something, you know, anything. Um, There are, are many other potential avenues for legal action against Trump. Uh, And again, whatever the case is, the FBI has to think it is fairly strong. Is it going to be a slam dunk? Can it be guaranteed to be a slam dunk? The Andrew Yangs of the world, right? They're like, oh, you know, if you do anything against Trump, it just makes him stronger. Well, okay, one. Let's assume that Merrick Garland's kind of a bit of a weenie. But is that a fair assumption? We feel pretty good about that one. Two, let's assume that if he is a bit of a weenie, whatever this case is against Trump has to be so strong that the Justice Department feels like it's something close to a slam dunk. And then I guess my third point is, maybe he does get off. You know, maybe he weasels out of it. Maybe maybe the Republican Supreme Court cuts him a lifeline. You know, the argument I made about what the Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Alito, what would Alito formulate to get Trump off the hook here? You don't think Alito would come up with this argument? Yeah, maybe. Maybe that wins 5-4 on the Supreme Court. Entirely possible. 6-3 possibly. But you should still do it. And we have a justice system that does not have a 99% conviction rate like Russia's does. Um, Our system is one that is not perfect, but one that does give the defendant a chance to defend themselves. It absolutely does. And Trump should have his day in court. And uh, we should enjoy it when Trump has his day in court because he will not do well on the stand. He has never done well on the stand. Look at how he handled the raid on Mar-a-Lago. He wasn't even at the house. And he's complaining about people getting into his safe. This is really rattling his cage. So then that brings us to the interesting question of the 2024 election. And... I think this really puts Republicans in disarray. Not Democrats in disarray, my friends. Republicans in disarray. Because we need to talk about our boy, to do Ron, 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 to do Ron, Ron. So, what does Ron do here? Right now, he is subterranean, hiding in a hole, avoiding being on camera opining about what's happening to Donald Trump. Bunker Ron, you might say. A little bunker Ronnie. But you can't be bunker boy forever, can you, Ron? And this is the problem for Ron DeSantis. In Florida, we talked about this the last episode, abortion is popular. Um, It would be very hard for Ron DeSantis to make a strong stance on abortion in his state or during the upcoming election here. Uh, Yeah, plus 16 uh, pro-choice in in Florida. And uh, between presidential performance and abortion views, plus 20. Ron DeSantis cannot tack hard on abortion. Trump can flank him on the right on that. Trump can say, I put the Supreme Court on there. Trump can speak to the base where the money's at. Whereas Ron DeSantis has to do this little do-si-do. He really does. He, he can't even hang on to popularity in his state if he starts going hard on abortion in his own state. And if he loses his own state... like. His presidential run is fundamentally flawed if he's not even popular in his home state. Uh, I get that he's their favorite horse. I get that they would want to give him the nomination instead of Donald Trump. I understand all these things. Absolutely. But for a viable political candidate, especially if you're doing this as the in the governor lane, right? The governor lane is very much predicated on I am good in a purpley state and I have strong poll numbers in a purpley state. Blue voters don't have to worry about me uh, if you're a red guy. Uh, you know, blue voters don't have to worry about me because I, I've been governing in a way that's moderate enough that won't actually rattle the cage of blue voters. 
uh, or, or if you are a blue governor in a red state back when you could do this, red voters don't have to worry about me, you know, because I'm a moderate and that sort of thing, right? Like that, that would be the argument getting made here. If DeSantis tacks hard to the right on abortion, I would look to see his poll numbers tank in Florida. And if his poll numbers tank in Florida, you know, it's like you're running for president. You're sitting at 42% in your home state. Like, what? what is your argument here, dude? Uh, like, why, why would we want you nationally? Uh, it's That is a hard argument to argue uphill on. So that that's problem number one for Ron DeSantis. But then I guess the other question is, if he can't tack to the right on abortion views, um, if he has to tack moderate, how does he win primaries? How does he win in an all-Republican electorate with where the Republican electorate is right now, extremely pleased with how their Supreme Court is ruling and, you know, re-sculpting the laws of the land here? What's the needle to thread for Ron DeSantis? And that's just the abortion needle. Like, like, like that, you know, how, how do we get, you know, or what's the, how do we thread that needle is, is the, what's the needle to thread is actually not a sentence. How do we thread that needle is a coherent sentence. We're going to try to use those on this show. This is a coherent show. Um, so Ron DeSantis, abortion problems, Donald Trump, much easier argument. Now, I gave you guys what you wanted. You guys wanted a strong Republican Supreme Court. I gave you a strong Republican Supreme Court. I told the line, I never compromised. I gave you people exactly what you wanted. Um, there are, of course, Republican voters who don't like that, but the people who are the most Republican, the most right-wing, love this. Um, they want more of this. If anything, they think of themselves as being on victory's doorstep, right? Like, if they can just get a nice red wave election and get a Republican president in the White House, one more clean sweep. They, in their minds, are going, dude, national abortion law, we can do this, we can do this. And then it would be like really hard to overturn because, you know, like it, we've got the Senate. It, I mean, in, in their minds, they're very, very close. So... That's the narrative that a Republican primary aspirant is going to be trying to sell to them. Can Ron DeSantis paint that picture in a really stark way and hang on to his numbers at home? I don't think so. Uh, and Donald Trump is going to be able to say, I'm the one who actually gave it to you. He's, he's talking about doing it. I gave it to you. I gave you what you wanted. That's a fairly compelling argument. Um, the other thing is that like, yeah, there's there's fewer Trumpies now, absolutely. But if there's not a new thing or a new place to go, I, especially uh, the thing that is depressing Republican turnout. Like if we, if we look at this Kansas example here, and we look at some of these other national numbers, and, and like I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not saying let's assume it's like a 100% slam dunk. Let's assume that like there's something to this, right? These Republican voters are looking for a meaningfully different flavor of republicanism um that's one that might even be like uh kind of chill on the pro-life thing um and actually maybe even kind of open to winding it back you know you have to sell it the right way or whatever but it's looking like there's a market for that um there are people who are like ah, you know how about i mean I, this is not my position, but like you could certainly see like, uh, I don't know. Um, how about if there's parental consent, uh, children can absolutely get an abortion. <laughs> like um, if we really think this through, like if, if a child can't actually give consent prior to the age of 18, all child sex is basically rape, which means, you, you know what I mean? Like it, it would all, everything below 18 would be an exception in the case of rape because in the laws in most states, under 18 is rape. So, you know, you could certainly see a market of Republican family values, people going like, well, yeah, no, I want to have control, not the government, over whether or not, how, how I manage my daughter's rape. And I don't need... Other people telling me, like, no, this might be a blessing for my family or something like that. Like, you know, I, there is a market for that. Um, DeSantis is not the guy to market that. So what does Ron do there? How does he find a lane here? I, I, he's the hot dog right now, but I just increasingly am thinking it's not going to be him. Okay, now let's get to January 6th. What's Ron DeSantis' position on January 6th? 
Was the election rightly decided? Joe Biden won the election. That, as, as we've talked about in a number of episodes, is a divisive issue in and of itself. Um, among the Republicans. Uh, not, not in reality, right? But like among Republicans, it's like 45, 55, or like something like almost about half of them believe that the election was wrongly decided, unjustly decided, unfairly decided. The numbers have actually stayed strikingly strong. Um, the one thing, the Andrew Yangs of the world, and I, I'm like talking a lot about Yang real quickly. Let me just read his little tweet. Uh, it's goofy shoes, but like, let's just talk about it right quick. He goes, I'm no Trump fan. I want him as far away from the white house as possible, but, and, and whenever you see, but deployed like that, you can just erase everything else. So we'll just start over. A fundamental part of Trump's appeal has been that it's him against a corrupt government establishment. The raid strengthens that case for millions of Americans who still see this as an unjust prosecution. One, uh, I don't know, like, I mean, it's like they, for him, as he's writing this, like less than 24 hours after the raids happened, and we still don't really know all the details. Like, I, I didn't want to, like, necessarily rush on the air and talk about, but then, like, Cody calls me up, and, like, other people have been texting me, and people have been sending me memes. I'm like, okay, everyone wants to hear what I think about the raid. Let's talk about the raid. Um, but like, let's let the story develop, Andrew, uh, let's get the facts out there so that we can you know, use logic in our big brains to understand what the fullness of the story is. Maybe the FBI's case is very weak, but as I just outlined, I, I think that there's decent enough reason given the actors and players involved here to think that this is probably a fairly strong case that the FBI doesn't wouldn't be bringing lightly just because of the precedent you're, you're setting a, a very very strong precedent here about when former presidents can be investigated i one that's frankly lovely and but i'm i'm glad that this happened uh like the the big thing is that he shouldn't be above the law where's the stance stand on that like, how does he feel about that um should a former president be you know above reproach here was something about this untoward how does ron feel about that I don't think his messaging team has a good answer for that. And you got to remember this too. All these questions are just up in the air right now without Trump punching in. There's no downward pressure coming from Donald Trump right now. The second the Trump laser turns on him, and it's going to, you're already seeing murmurs of like Ron New, that sort of thing. And if Trump gets up there and goes like, Ron New, Ron New, you know, he could have told me. There's a certain governor of Florida who knew things. Uh, Ron knew. Ron knew. Um, it, it, that's just out there. Ron knew. That's the sort of thing that... What, is, what does Ron decide to say? I didn't know. And then you don't know what's going on. You don't know if the FBI is going to raid your own state. What does that say about your management style? Or if you did know, what does that say? What, like, what do you say? Like that, now, now you're a Judas backstabber. And, and if Trump is convicted... And that's an if. That's an if. Uh, I, he might, or he might just keep appealing the conviction. Um, and, and nothing takes effect until, like, the conviction's sort of final. And he might be able to still run and do everything, kind of like Clinton was doing, um, while the investigation goes onward. If, uh, how does how's Ron DeSantis sort of thread the needle on the verdict there? Oh, the verdict was rightly decided. Um, and, and if Trump can't run... He's going to pick someone else, and it's going to be his like self-appointed successor, and it's not going to be DeSantis. And that guy is going to be like, you stabbed our dude in the back. Ron DeSantis, he will be like Tulsi Gabbard was to Kamala Harris. Um, not necessarily a viable threat to win the nomination, but a threat to a certain candidacy. And I think that candidacy is Ron DeSantis. I... All of this seems like good news for him. I think it's bad news. Obviously, I also think it's bad news for Donald Trump, which leads me to believe that there will be a third person, not DeSantis, not Trump, who ultimately wins the Republican nomination. Not sure who that's going to be at this point. But DeSantis does not have an easy lane. He really doesn't. Um, the Kansas story... And this story here with Trump, Trump's Mar-a-Lago getting raided, they all 
paint a bad news secondary story for Ron DeSantis um, that, that's hard to ignore, even, even as it scans, obviously, as a bad news story for Donald Trump. All right, so I'm not going to talk about dark Brandon rising other than like uh, somebody please help the Biden administration understand that you can't get memes off of 4chan because oftentimes they have secondary images in the background like the Third Reich Eagle. And so when you're sharing these images, you might actually be doing a bit of a self-own. And like... Good on them for marketing a scaled-down version of Build Back Better as Dark Brandon Rising, the greatest triumph since FDR FDR'd. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll grant them that. Like, like it's crap. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Like, this bill is not that great. Like, there's no signature policy to crawl about, right? It's just memes. But boy, are they memeing. They are memeing hard. Um... And, and I will give them that. I will absolutely give them that. They they are memeing the heck out of this. That's really all I got to say about Dark Brandon Rising. I want to finish out this show on Russia and the Ukrainian southern counteroffensive. Um, I don't want to get like into the blow-by-blow of the counteroffensive. There are people more kind of qualified to talk about that than me. But there are some important global implications of the counteroffensive that we can discuss that don't involve like, you know, what region are we moving into, into Ukraine and that sort of thing. And that is Russia attacking a nuclear power plant. This is from NBC News. The prospect of a nuclear catastrophe spurred growing international alarm Monday after a shelling hit a Russian-controlled nuclear power plant in Ukraine that's almost twice the size of Chernobyl. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres called for international inspectors to be given access to the sprawling nuclear site as fears of a disaster grew after the weekend strikes let the plant damaged but still operational. Ukraine said a Russian shelling hit the Soviet-era site Friday and Saturday and has called for the plant to be demilitarized. The Russian attacks damaged several buildings, put one reactor offline, and has raised the threat of radiation leaks and fire, according to the Ukraine National Energy Company, whose name I cannot pronounce. Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, said last week that he was, quote, deeply concerned by Russian forces taking over the plant. Quote, there are credible reports that Russia is using this plant as the equivalent of a human shield, but a nuclear shield in the sense that it's firing on Ukrainians from around the plant. And of course, the Ukrainians cannot and will not fire back lest there be a terrible accident involving a nuclear plant. Uh, This is consistent. We'll talk about this in a moment with Russian recklessness involving nuclear technology. Russian forces seized this plant in March, just over a week after the invasion began. But it's still run by Ukrainian staff, who are like kind of sort of hostages, right? Like, I, I in, in this weird hostage situation, around 500 Russian soldiers and 50 military vehicles are at the plant, said the Ukrainian National Power Company. So, terrible situation in and of itself. So you have this Ukrainian nuclear staff who are being held hostage at a damaged nuclear power plant that might have been damaged. I mean, the Russians are saying it was damaged by Ukrainian response fire. Entirely possible in the sense that the Russians are using this nuclear plant, it appears, as a staging area. As a staging area. And... I guess, like, the reason I want to bring this up is it really, this story in particular really cuts at the argument that was ruled out by a lot of doves at the beginning of the war, that we had to be worried that Russia was going to use a nuclear weapon. And you might go, well, this says it's more likely that they'd use a nuclear weapon. Oh, I I get where you're trying to go with this. Here's my point. Russia's nuclear recklessness is just a fact of the way Vladimir Putin's Russian military operates. We can go back to Chernobyl earlier this year. Let's let's recap the Chernobyl incident, not of 1986, but of earlier this year. As the staging grounds for an assault on the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, the Chernobyl exclusion zone, one of the most toxic places on Earth, was probably not the best choice. 
Nicely done, New York Times, with the passive voice. But that did not seem to bother the Russian generals who took over the site at the early stages of the war. The Russian generals. I want to stop there because all these decisions, this is very important, are coming from Vladimir Putin. They're coming from generals. They are coming from the top. This recklessness around nuclear technology is coming from the top. And the Russians aren't going to stop until they either capture Ukraine or they're pushed back into their borders. Um, But the recklessness is going to continue. Continuing on in the story. We told them not to do it, that it was dangerous, but they ignored us, said Valery Simonyanev, uh, the chief safety engineer for the Chernobyl nuclear site. Apparently undeterred by the safety concerns, Russian forces tramped on the ground with bulldozers and tanks, digging trenches and bunkers, and exposing themselves to potentially harmful doses of radiation lingering beneath the surface. In a visit to the recently liberated nuclear station, the site of the worst nuclear disaster in 1986, the wind blew swirls of dust along the roads, and the scenes of disregard for safety were everywhere. Though Ukrainian nuclear officials say no major radiation leak was triggered by Russians uh, month-long, oh, that looks so weird in this font, month-long military occupation. At just one site of extensive trenching in a few hundred yards outside of the town of Chernobyl, the Russian army had dug an elaborate maze of sunken walkways and bunkers. An abandoned armored personnel carrier sat nearby. The soldiers had apparently camped out for weeks in the radioactive forest. In trenches in the ground. Mr. Simonyanev said that the Russian military had deployed officers from a nuclear, biological, and chemical unit, as well as experts from Rosatom, Russia's state nuclear power company, who had consulted with the Ukrainian scientists. But the Russian nuclear experts seemed to hold little sway over the army commanders, he said. The military men seemed more preoccupied with playing an assault on Kiev, and after that failed, using Chernobyl as an escape route to Belarus for their badly mauled troops. They came and they did whatever they wanted in the zone around the station. Despite efforts by him and other Ukrainian nuclear engineers and technicians who remained at the site through the occupation, working around the clock and unable to leave except for one shift change in late March, the entrenching continued. Sure sounds like they're hostages. Sure sounds like nuclear personnel people are being taken as hostages. That is very scary. Think about that for a second. You've taken a nuclear team hostage. What's their most powerful utility? Their knowledge of nuclear technology? Seems bad. Seems bad. The earthworks were not the only instance of recklessness in the treatment of a site so toxic that it still holds the potential to spread radiation well beyond Ukraine's borders. In a potentially ill-advised action, or particularly ill-advised action, a Russian soldier from a chemical, biological, and nuclear protection unit... From the protection units. Picks up a source of cobalt-60 at one way storage site with his bare hands, like, like my hands, bare, exposing himself to so much radiation in a few seconds that it went off the scales of a Geiger counter. It was not clear what happened to the man. We, of course, do not know how badly jacked up all of these Russian troops are, but, like, you know they're jacked up, and the Russians don't care. Um, There's a recklessness that is coming from the top and an ignorance that seems to be permeating the bottom. And that is a very, very dangerous combination and is part of the reason why the Russian action needs to be stopped. Um, I, of course, want the Ukrainians to have success during this counteroffensive. Uh, I, I would love this southern push to get the Russians back entirely into their borders. Um, but we are, every time the Ukrainians push back, especially if it's not sufficient, we move closer to nuclear escalation. Um, so, Chris, are you asking the Ukrainians to back down so the Russians can just win so that we avoid it? No, 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 no. <laughs> we need to finish this. This needs to be done. Um this is dangerous. This is so obviously dangerous. And the Russians are have demonstrated now for months on end that they are a military that does not operate with 21st century restraint. Um, they're 
they're behaving like a pre-World War One military. That might not even be fair to a pre-World War One military, but like it really a pre-Geneva sort of military, um, only in a post-nuclear world. Russia is highly likely to be using so-called butterfly mines in eastern Ukraine that are capable of inflicting widespread civilian casualties, a UK defense chief claimed on Monday. In the latest intelligence updates, the Ministry of Defense warned Vladimir Putin's forces were probably deploying anti-personnel mines to, quote, protect and deter freedom of movement along its defensive lines in the Donbass. Defense chiefs say that they can inflict widespread casualties among both military and local residents. In Donetsk and Kramatorsk, Russia has highly likely attempted employment of PFM and PFM-15 scatterable anti-personnel mines, they claimed. Commonly called the butterfly mines, the PFM-1 series are deeply controversial, indiscriminate weapons. PFF or PFM-1s were used to devastating effect in the Soviet-Afghan wars where they allegedly maimed high numbers of children who mistook them for toys. It is highly likely that the Soviet-era stock being used by Russia will have degraded over time and are now highly unreliable and unpredictable. Do you think the Russians care about that, people? When I talk about their disco tanks, what I'm referring to is that the Russians are largely operating with extremely dated technology. Um, dated technology that do not respect modern human rights standards. Uh, and like, yeah, that late era Soviet military, particularly in the Afghan war, uh, it's not like they re like look super favorably like compared to us or anything, you know. Like uh, maybe maybe in terms of overall body count, don't have those numbers off the top of my head. But like, I mean, come on, you really think like the standards were better? No, they absolutely were probably just as ruthless as us. And speaking of just as ruthless, claims of new Russian atrocities and like this kind of this makes Abu Ghraib look fairly mild in comparison. Claims of new Russian atrocities after gruesome images appeared to show the heads of Ukrainian POWs stuck on a pole. And I, I didn't think about this when I was putting together the slate because I was thinking about the nuclear story as a nuclear story and not as a nuclear personnel being held hostage story uh, basically being held as prisoners of war but that's exactly what's happening to the nuclear personnel well here's what's happening to other ukrainians uh ukrainians who by the way are being invaded because the russians are saying you are ethnically part of russia here's how the russians are treating who they believe are their own people a new image posted by a ukrainian official appears to show the skull of a ukrainian prisoner of war placed on a stick outside a building in the eastern ukrainian town of Papasna, which was captured by Russian forces in May. Sergei Haidai, the governor of Ukrainian's Luhansk province, shared the unsettling photo in his Telegram channel. Insider Business Insider has not been able to verify the image independently. However, geolocation tools suggest that it is genuine, said The Guardian. And the gruesome photo was taken in late July, not far from the center of Pops Papasna. Near the head are the remains of a decapitated body in uniform without its hands. Two hands have been placed on metal spikes on a fence on either side of the head, a video shows, reported by The Guardian. Quote, we heard the cries, Anna Voresheva told The Guardian. They played loud music to cover the screams. Torture happened all the time. A Ukrainian MP told Insider... Quote, I wish I could turn back time and not see this video, but we knew that this was happening in the occupied territories. The Russian military rapes, mutilates, and kills Ukrainians, both civilians and POWs. Responding to the footage, Marie Struthers, uh, here's where this story takes a disgusting turn. Um, and I'm going to end this. I, this episode ends on kind of a weird note today, but like, look, I, I think that there's some meaningful inward looking that needs to occur among a number of left sources. One of them, and I, this really disappointed me, uh, Amnesty International, the, the way they have handled this is just embarrassing. Let me read this. Marie Struthers, Amnesty International, Director for Eastern Europe and Central Asia, said, quote, This horrific assault is yet another apparent example of complete disregard for human life and dignity in Ukraine committed by the Russian forces. 
Well, that sounds fine. That sounds fine. But meanwhile, the head of Amnesty International's Ukraine arm has resigned after the human rights organization blamed Kiev for endangering civilians and violating international laws with its wartime tactics. Oksana Palaschuk, the head of Amnesty International Ukraine, said in a Facebook post late Friday that the report became a tool of Russian propaganda. The report was also slammed by Vladimir Zelensky and said that it had sought to offer amnesty to the terrorist state and shift the responsibility from the aggressor to the victims. Meanwhile, the Secretary General of Amnesty International, Agnes Calamard, told AFP News Agency that Amnesty fully stands by their research. What did this report say? What did this report say? Okay, so it says, Ukraine, military endangering civilians by locating forces in residential areas, new research says. Schools and hospitals used as military bases by Ukrainian forces. Like, like I want you to guys... Um, if you're watching the video here, to see how this is even framed. Ukraine. Okay, maybe that's just location, right? Okay, maybe this is just location. Uh, first line, schools and hospitals used as military bases by the Ukrainian forces. Like they're fucking terrorists. Like they're terrorists. Uh, we have no say in what the military does, but we pay the price, says a resident in the city of Bakhmut. Being in a defensive position does not exempt the Ukrainian military from respecting international humanitarian law, says Agnes Kalamard. Being in a defensive position. And, and like, let's look at the first phrases. The Ukrainian military has endangered Ukrainian civilians by establishing bases and operating weapon systems in residential areas, including schools and hospitals, as it has sought to repel the Russian invasion. The New York Times blushes at the deployment of the passive voice here by Amnesty International. Uh, I could keep going on here. Um, I, I mean, like, like uh, no, I'll, I'll do one more. I'll do one more. Ukraine's tactics have violated international humanitarian law as they've turned civilian objects into military targets. The ensuing Russian strikes in populated areas have killed civilians and destroyed civilian infrastructure. Not every Russian attack documented by Amnesty has followed this pattern. In certain locations in which Amnesty concluded that Russia had committed war crimes, including in some areas in the city of Kharkiv, Amnesty did not find evidence of Ukrainian forces located in civilian areas unlawfully targeted by the Russian military. Wow. Wow. Uh, so sometimes the Ukrainians, um, when they've had the ability to, don't do this. But why are they doing this? What's up with the Ukrainian military? Why, why are they putting all these people in schools? I mean, like, come on. Like, it's messed up. Something's got to be going on, right? Boggles the mind. Boggles the mind. Um, and for Amnesty to stand by this report um, and, and not terminate, for example, uh, Agnes Calamard here uh, it, it is an absolute disgrace. Uh, it, it, is, it is a failure. It is a, it is absolute failure. And for Calamard to do a double down puts Amnesty in a really uncredible position here. Uh, and they're generally an organization that I think is pretty principled. But you got to have clarity on this one. This this is so open and shut. The Russian military decided that they are going to that they wanted to invade the entirety of Ukraine and annex it, cause reasons, cause reasons. Ukraine doing nothing. Ukraine gets invaded, and this is after they already annexed Crimea. Um, this is like a decades long planned out invasion, like a decade long planned out invasion, basically. And Amnesty is trying to split the difference here. Um, and, and I think it's it's really important to, to think about some of this stuff. Um, I, if anything, this, this suffers from toxic centrism. Uh, that when you split the difference on something that's morally clear, you are effectively giving cover to the offending side. So when you split the difference on election denial and you go, well, you know, there's a debate going on here. You are essentially helping out the election deniers. When you split the difference on the Ukrainian for defensive position versus the Russian elective offensive annexation, you are helping the Russians. Um, 
Very, very, very disappointing. Um, you know, you might expect it from a goofus like Jill Stein. I know, I know. You haven't thought about that name in a minute, but like, let, let us end on this note. Uh, just for a chuckle, if you will. Um, up on the screen here, we've got Jill Stein. Jill Stein isn't sorry. This is from 2017. The Green Party candidate has no regrets, even as Democrats accuse her of helping to elect Donald Trump in cozying up to Vladimir Putin. And, and when they say this, what, what were they referring to? It was the dinner that Jill Stein had with Vladimir Putin. Where her explanation of this dinner is that the Russians spoke Russian and the English-speaking people spoke English. If you're looking at the picture on here, I, I'm confused. I'm now obviously Dmitry Peskov probably speaks English, um, but that means that Jill Stein was really only talking to Putin's spokesman the entire dinner, which would still be really weird. Uh, like and, and to act like you're not effectively having a conversation I mean, it beggars belief that like you're sitting at dinner you're talking to Putin's spokesman you're not essentially having a proxy conversation with Vladimir Putin so then let us assume that Putin who is seated next to Michael Flynn does not speak any English to Michael Flynn we know Vladimir Putin speaks English uh, I mean to this point, uh, Jill Stein's always used this little cute, oh, the Russians spoke Russians, you know, just spoke to each other in Russian, the English speakers spoke English. Except that it, it sort of implies that the Russians only spoke Russian. But we know the Russians spoke English. So, again, looking at this table, Put Mike Flynn is sitting next to Putin, and Jill Stein is sitting next to Putin's spokesman. Um, like, so... Um, this This is... Just, uh, it truly, a uh, beggar's belief that, uh, Jill Stein wasn't having some sort of interplay with Vladimir Putin. And, and I wonder how she feels about that now. And I just like want to end on this note because I, I do think it's really important as we figure out, Honestly, looking at the Ron DeSantis example, you don't want to walk yourself inadvertently into indefensible corners like DeSantis has. And I think that for left left-leaning and progressive people and you know left of progressive, um, splitting the difference on Ukraine here, um, particularly as the Chinese are gearing up to invade Taiwan, is a very, very bad position to get ourselves into. Um you know, I, okay, I a bonus round. Want to do a little quick bonus round? Sure. Let's bonus round on Taiwan here. Round of applause for Nancy Pelosi going and visiting Taiwan. Thought it was great. Um, I, I, I think that the escalation by the Chinese government uh, against Pelosi in the U.S., it is what it is. I was reading an article this week that, uh, I believe it was in Fortune, that described TSMC, that's Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, as the most important semicon or the most important company in the world. Just simple sentence, most important company in the world. Uh, we have gotten a taste over the last couple of years, uh, particularly in this last year, of like what a supply chain crisis looks like. And I don't think people are fully processing what a supply chain crisis in terms of semiconductors would mean for global inflation, would mean for access to technology, and uh, what level of strategic importance TSMC is to uh, global well-being. Uh, it, it's, it's unbelievably important. Uh, and it's very important that both the Republicans and the Democrats have a coherent, cohesive, and detente-like position on Taiwan, it needs like like you hate to say it, but we can fight about other stuff, but we can't be fighting about like what we're doing with Taiwan right now because you know I saw last week Marjorie Taylor Greed basically saying let let TSMC you know sink because they have factories in China. Oh my God! If people like her get power, they will do so much damage not just to us, but like to the in higher Western world and create like an impact on the global supply chain that will ripple for like five years. Like in the history books, I'm already seeing like the great semiconductor crisis of the 20, of the 2020s, right? Like, like that, that's, I mean, picture yourself or your kid reading a book 
like that 20 years from now talking about this potential time. Um, that's where I could see this going because if TSMC goes down, um, I saw that they make 90% of something. I forget what though. But the, the, the numbers and what they do, like look, look into them. Just like look into them as a company if you don't know what Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation does. This is probably, a, this is a name that you need to acquaint yourself with. And I'm not saying that from an investment perspective. Actually, I think they're a pretty risky investment right now not a certified financial consultant or whatever. I'm, I'm bringing them up just because they are politically important now in a way that like I would never have said maybe even like five years ago. I, I mean, I would have put it on the horizon, but like, no, nah, we're on the cusp of something with China. And, and the Ukraine thing in the background here has only made that more likely. Um, I'm glad that Pelosi went over there. Uh, I, I w want us to take an even stronger stance on Taiwan. I'm glad that public support seems to be very strong against the Chinese invasion of Taiwan. But we have to start sending a message that we're actually going to do something about this stuff. Um, Ukraine is an opportunity. Uh, and and, and I, when I say we, I, I've said this before, I'll end, I just want to hit it home one more time. It's not like go it alone like Bush. Like, no, this really does need to be like the West. Like, everyone's got a stake in this. If the Chinese corner the market on semiconductors, uh, it doesn't just affect the United States. It's, it affects every country on the planet um, and not in a good way. Uh, we have to have a coherent, strong-minded position on defending this. And, it, and I think it it will be cheaper to defend Taiwan now than pay the cost down the line of not defending Taiwan. Um, in the same way that I've been saying this with Ukraine, where it would have been cheaper up front to just toe the line on Ukraine up front in February versus what we all have been doing now, which is paying for it. Um, we have paid the price of inaction. Um, I am telling you people, if you thought the price of inaction on Ukraine was steep, Look at your stock portfolio. Look at the gas prices. I know they're coming down. I know they're coming down. But like, look, look at where they've been at. Look at how much you've been having to pay for this war. Um, look at what happened to your, your stock portfolios. I, I mean, look at inflation. Um, yeah, like we've been paying for that war. Whether It doesn't matter if they pass a law in Congress. There's many different ways to pay for a war. There's many different ways to pay for an action on a war. Um, the price of not doing something on Taiwan is so much cheaper than the price. Or I'm sorry, the price of doing something to protect Taiwan is much lower than the price of not doing something. Uh, I assure you, I assure you. Um, I know a bit of a sour note here, but like, I mean, dude, th this, this like peacenik, oh, let's just like talk it out with China and Russia thing. It didn't work. It didn't work. Um, and like, one last thought. Every time Russia is trying to like get us to the table now, it entirely scans to me as a stall tactic. They are only talking about like, oh, we'll do this little grain tradey thing. Oh, you know, denuclearization. They were never serious about denuclearizing. No, they were not. No, they were not. Look at look at the way they are conducting this war. And tell me that when Jill Stein and all these doofuses back in the last decade were trying to tell us, oh, the Russians are really serious about doing the strategic arms reduction treaty. You know, like if we were just nicer to them, things would be better. No, no. They, they don't take nuclear errors that seriously. Therefore, they would never take nuclear reduction that seriously. Faulty logic. Faulty logic. Um, and I, I think, you know, we, we can, let's not fall into that same trap, trap with the Chinese government here. Uh, I'm not saying they're like as sloppy as on nuclear stuff, but like uh, this, this idea that, you know, we, we can talk sense with them and we can reason with them. It, when the left says this with Russia and China, it makes me laugh the same way when the libs, like the, the centrist Dems say this about the Republicans. No. No, no, Joe Biden. Uh, like Jill Stein says this about Russia. Joe Biden says this about the Republicans. My laugh is the same. Uh, th these, th there, there are people who everyone starts off reasonable, but, and you've experienced this in your own life. 
like let's grant that like people everyone's born reasonable or, or you know what i mean like like if they had like a normal childhood normal upbringing ish whatever normal is you know what i mean stable whatever healthy um however you want to define that they, they would be reasonable right but we also know that like people through life experience um really like whenever those life experiences happen younger or older right arrive at a point where they are no longer reasonable um yeah like like Vladimir Putin is not reasonable. He's not being reasonable. Um, the January 6th Republicans are not reasonable. They are not being reasonable. Um, you know, at a certain point, you just have to acknowledge that and go like, okay, how do we proceed from there then? Um, let, let's assume that they are beyond reasoning with, that like our words cannot solve this situation. Um, you know, how, how do we act then? China is not going to relent on Taiwan. Not not through reason, not through like nice words. Um, no, they they look. Uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation being the most valuable company in the world. That's a big thing to compete for. It's the thing they want. Um, it's a valuable thing. It has the thing with value. So you know, um, thinking about it in those terms, thinking about it in those terms, then. we just have to we have to realize how much they value it and we have to place that same value on it as well and like it or at least think about like okay if they value it this much why like what is it about this that they value so much that's my thought here um all right so that's going to do it for this episode of don't worry about the government a lot to talk about here um a lot to consider uh you know on on one hand obviously very fun to see Donald Trump get raided by the FBI. Very, very narratively satisfying to see, you know, go after her documents. Hillary Clinton was acid washing the papers. And like Donald Trump is now uh, Mr. Chewing the papers and flushing the papers. Uh, of course, Hillary's version of it would be more sophisticated. Trump's would be brutally primitive, but the exact same thing. That like is, again, very narratively satisfying. The thing that raises him up, brings him down. Look, I'm an English major. All of this very much appeals to me. Um, but at the same time, uh, we, you know, it's not the only thing going on anymore, right? Like bringing Trump to justice and having him face justice is a good thing that should happen and all of that. But like, okay, you have to deal with the abortion issue. Like, what are we doing about this? Um, there are many global challenges right now that it, for, for all the domestic sturm and drong we're facing, we have to keep sight on because... Problems have a way of arriving at the beaches of our shores very, very quickly in a global economy. Uh, it's it's not as though, like, you can ignore a, a war in Ukraine because you do pay for it. And it, same thing with Taiwan. You will pay for it. Um, we're all connected. Uh, so, lot to think about still. Lot to think about. But enjoy this enjoy this like man couldn't have into a nicer guy right couldn't have into a nicer president all right that is going to do it for this episode of don't worry about the government i want to thank you guys so much for supporting the show um i know a lot of people are very excited about the bizarro Kasich level uh which you can join at it's one dollar a show over at patreon.com slash dwatg no longer friends of Kasich. now now we're embracing bizarro Kasich. maybe Maybe Bizarro Kasich is who the Republicans need. No. No, he's not. But you do need to go and sub up over at patreon.com slash DWATG. Smooth pivot. Like, like graceful. Like, radio. 552 episodes of this shit. Uh, of just this show alone. I mean, when you bring it all together, you, you can really hear the polish in my delivery here. I am now on Instagram at Dr. Underscore No. What? Yes, I'm on Instagram. It's like cats and guitar and music stuff only. So if you are interested in the non-political side of Chris Novembrino, you can go and follow Instagram at Dr. No. If you want the politics side of Chris Novembrino, that is over at DWATG. Um, or if you're like listening to it, like you have found the politics side of Chris Novembrino. But like, I keep a clean split. Uh, you know, like like there is there's definitely a wall where like you know it's just we're not doing politics. So like, if you try to do politics on my Instagram, like I I will be taking a very dim view of that. 
very dim. Um, I will just put that out out front. If you want to talk politics, please do that on Twitter or over at the Patreon. Uh, I, it's business facing. There are kids reading it. We're not doing politics over on the Instagram. Just saying that. But I'd love to have you following. Um, I will be posting like core charts, like C Lab 2021, that sort of thing. You can find them on the Patreon. You might be able to find them on the Instagram. Uh, cat videos, uh, cat pictures, and me playing guitar, that sort of thing. All that will be up on the Instagram. Love to have you following at Dr. Underscore Nov. Obviously at DWATG on Twitter and patreon.com slash DWATG. Would love to have the bucket show. Did I mention I lost my job uh, last days on Friday? It's a bummer. I hate having to grind. I hate having to show like this. I hate having to hit the drum. But, like, it's also important to feed your cats. I want to thank you guys so much for listening and supporting the show. My name is Chris Novembrino. Don't Worry About the Government is an ostensibly weekly podcast. Until the next one. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.